Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Guys, can we a little bit of professionalism? Can we just let's try it one more time? Joey, don't count act us down. like you're suddenly professional on the new recording because on the old one. No, he, now he's going to interrupt me. That's what he's doing. I'm not. I'm not going to interrupt you. I promise. Let's just do the countdown, please. Three, two. One. Are we clapping on one? Or are we clapping is. on? <laughs> we do three, two, one clap or three, two, clap. three, two, one, three, two, go one clap. clap. So we're clapping on zero then. Oh, so we're clapping a three, two, one, go clap. Yeah, it's like a minus, minus one. (laughs) Three, two, one, go clap, or is it three, two, one, clap? Do we clap on go? This was so easy before. All right, count us down. I I won't screw this up this time, I promise. All right. (laughs) Three, two, one. Welcome to the EDH Rec cast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. Say hi, Matt. Hey, everybody. It's Matt. How's it going? Next, waiting over there in the margins, it's the author of the In the Margin series, Dana Roach. Good evening, gentlemen. How's it going? And of course, the man you all know and love. He's been dubbed the Ryan Seacrest of EDH, Jason Alt. Ta-da! <laughs> and I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. So, as everyone listening is probably wondering, who are we and what do we do for EDH Rec? Matt, do you want to get started off? You just said, though. <laughs> yeah. You just well, said there's their series. Well, for people who don't know, I guess. Um, so, the 60 to 100 article series that I write... Um, it's where I take decks requested often by a reader. Sometimes I, you know, look for recent results in competitive tournament magic and uh, take the, the essence of the deck and turn it into an EDH deck, whether it's uh, the Eldrazi decks from Modern and turn it into an Animar deck. Uh, I take Fairies from Standard from years and years ago, turn it into a Widwin deck. Um, and then every now and then I will, uh, I'll write an opinion piece, which usually gets uh, the best best feedback from Reddit. Only the best. 
Alrighty, Dana, what about you? Uh, I do a series, as you mentioned, called In the Margins. Um, I usually take a card that has better variants available, um, but that gets played too much. The easy example is Cancel, where there's you know a, a dozen strictly better variants available, but people still run Cancel for some reason, so I just go through and show you all the cards that you can run you know, at, rough, at the same CMC or roughly the same CMC that do the same thing that are going to be better in your deck. And you can't pretend that you're not running those cards because we have the EDH rec data that proves that thousands of you are running cancel. It's definitely a very enlightening series. Uh, me, I do the Commander Showdown series where I take two commanders with sort of similar abilities, for example, Rune and Brago, who both blink things on the battlefield, and I compare and contrast their deck building style and their card choices. And I uh, try and figure out which one might be better for each reader. Jason, what and, about you? And what do you I do hired for everybody. It was my fault. I was like, EDH Rec is a nice Reddit bot turned website, and there's cool stuff on here, but I kind of wish that there were a little bit more context to the data. Hey, what if someone wrote articles? And then Don from EDH Rec kind of got with me. He's like, hey, you said that my site should have articles. Do you want to do that? And I was like, yeah, I probably should. So I had experience starting that sort of thing before because I, I kind of had the same epiphany on brainstormbrewery.com where we just posted our podcast, but we were getting a lot of traffic. I was like, what if we had articles? So I had the experience of like building up that stuff from scratch completely, and that's kind of what I did. I found all these miscreants. I, I hired all of them. We got the uh, got the site going. I think the people seem to like the articles, so I think we're going to keep it going, but... I will fire everybody at a moment's notice. Ask Matt Morgan about that. He's been fired a lot. so uh, Several times. Keep the quality up, boys, and uh, and we'll be good. So uh, that was my own little side project that kind of turned into like a full-time thing. So uh, that's kind of how the article started. No one asked about that, but... <laughs> so you helped get the site to the article status, and now you're helping us get to podcast status. Yep. I'm just I'm here to watch if my baby birds can leave the nest on their own if if you guys plummet to the forest floor below I'll watch that too I guess so good luck well so EDHREC is a great resource to observe statistics but it's our philosophy that those statistics require context so with this podcast it's our goal to flesh out the meaning of all those numbers and percentages that you find on the site and perhaps to even challenge those numbers and give you some behind the scenes information about the website so for our first cast, what's our topic today, boys? The precon effect. Dana, what is the precon effect? You know, Sam Alpert, who's a writer on the website, went through and came up with a pretty good definition. And maybe we'll link that in some show notes so you can read his much more drawn out description of what it is. But basically, the precon effect is people buy their precon deck and then you know, put the whole list online and then either don't change it or change it just minimally. So all those cards that were in the precon show up in EDH rec when you search for the appropriate commander and it makes it look like those cards were selected by people for their deck when in fact they were just the default cards that were in the box when you brought it home from the store because people if they're building a deck from scratch they tend to build from zero cards up but if you're rebuilding a precon you start at 100 work your way down to the minimum you take out all the stuff that seems unacceptable and then you build back up. So a lot of stuff gets left in there that just seems 
just it seems fine, right? Like, why replace it with a whole new card? And the fact that you are starting with that card as a given and maybe eliminating it, maybe not, tends to bias you towards leaving stuff in that probably shouldn't be left in or gets left in more than it would get included, therefore making it seem like it's a better inclusion than it is. Yeah, and it has a habit of creating conflicting deck types, too, and that's one thing we'll cover here in a minute, where, you know, you see a card and that you wonder, why the heck is this in there? Like, what happens because the precons, they'll have multiple different legendary creatures, sometimes with the different themes along the same color scheme, and it doesn't really make sense, you know, having it be in the main commander, but it would make sense for the secondary commander, but it still shows up in all the deck lists because people copy and paste the original, uh, the original 99. Yeah, with the precon effect, we get a lot of cards that are, shall we say, subpar. They're they're decent cards, but they're not necessarily the best fit if you were to have built the deck from scratch. You you probably wouldn't have included those cards. Dana, you mentioned that this concept, the precon effect, was first explained by Sam's article, and I think the examples that he used in his article were for a Brea Ethereum Shaper deck. The cards that he used were Trash or Treasure, Iker Wellspring, and Chief Engineer, which he argued if you were building the deck from scratch, you may not immediately jump to those particular cards over a couple of other better qualified candidates. Well, I mean, and a good example, too, would be just be talking about cancel before. I mean, they're going to include, if they're going to put counter spells in a deck, cancel's an easy one to use. Number one, it's in a gazillion different standard sets over the years, and it's simple to figure out. So they just put cancel in a precon or something. Well, you know, if you have only been playing the last couple of years, you might not even know that counter spell exists. Like, maybe you've never even seen that card. So it, when you go to you know, either build or or beef up your Brea deck, maybe you'll never even look at an alternative because, well, I've got cancel, it clearly must be a good card. So we're talking about this precon effect, but why is this a bad thing at all? What problems does this create in the EDH community? It creates problems in the EDH rec community, I would say first and foremost, because I think that's noise. I think if something is overrepresented, it tends to get a spot on the page that's something that's played a little bit less but is more effective in the deck, you know, kind of gets bumped off of the uh, the end there, you know? So I, I think anything that's sort of noise should be uh, dealt with and removed so you get a, a better look at your signal. And I think the tendency to, to overrepresent mediocre or, you know, not that great cards kind of covers up uh, a little bit better tech and that's kind of what we're trying to drill down and find those better cards as opposed to the stuff that people are just playing because they thought they were supposed to yeah for sure another big problem that we run into is that it sort of creates a feedback loop on the website as well so since people see those high percentages for those cards that came in the precon they assume that those must be the best cards so then they when building their own version of that deck also put those cards into their deck and throw their list online so then edh rec goes and gets that data as well, and so it keeps giving those cards a higher percentage. It becomes that positive feedback loop, so those cards will stay popular because people see that they're popular, when all along they maybe shouldn't be as highly played as they are because they're just a convenient fit, but they're not a perfect fit. Well, I think that feedback loop extends to commanders beyond just the precon ones, too. Like, if you are a new player and every single deck you look at online on EDH Rec has an Evolving Wilds in it because Evolving Wilds came in the you know, every precon for the most part, when you go to build your deck that might even not be a precon deck, it has created this perception perhaps in your head that Evolving Wilds is a card that you should be running in your two-color deck, even if you may have a near-perfect mana base. I mean, I've seen a lot of times where people, you know, put an Evolving Wilds in a deck where it has no reason to, to go there, and I feel like a part of that is because 
you know, Wilds and Expanse are in 50,000 decks or something on EDHRAC between the two of them, when people see those cards showing up a lot, in part because of the precon effect, it bleeds over into other non-precon decks, I think. That's a really good point. I think a really big example would be Temple of the False God. That's a card that we see a whole lot in precon decks, and a lot of people have been making arguments that it probably shouldn't be in a lot of decks at all. A lot of people have some pretty big problems with that land. Temple of the False God has made me mulligan more hands than serum powder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and Jimmy and Josh over the command zone, they'll talk quite a bit about how they treat it like a spell instead of a land when they're doing their uh, land counts and building their decks, and it's just overrepresented. There's a lot of people who don't like it, and people keep playing it, though. Yeah. Boy, the spell thing makes absolute sense, and it kind of gives you a workaround for it, but there's also no way to incorporate that into the data on EDHREC. Like, you, you can't spell that out for the casual person using the site to build their deck. They, they don't know that they just see it in the deck and assume, well, it's one of my lands. Yeah, the Temple of the False God shows up presently in 81,467 decks. That's a lot of decks. And if you look at the top commanders for it, a lot of them are from the precons. It's in Atraxa, it's in Brea, it's in Olaro, it's in Nikosar. And those are all very, like, they have three or more colors in those commanders. So a colorless land probably isn't the thing that you need immediately. But since it came in the precon, it's probably good enough, right? So that's one example of why the precon effect can be such a bad thing for aspiring deck builders. That's why I play Vivid Lands, you know? <laughs> I mean, even playing like the Tap Lands from Konzatar Kier and Fate Reforge, those are even better than, at least I think they're better than playing Temple of Foss God, because everybody thinks, oh, it's an ancient tomb, but it's really not an ancient tomb because it's your third land and doesn't do anything. So getting back to some of the other things that can be kind of bad about the precon effect, Matt, I noticed that you put a note here in our show notes about creating conflicting themes. Do you want to explain a little bit more what you mean here? Yeah, so... On the precon effect, um, like I said, it kind of creates a misidentity. It gives you some cards that don't really fit what a commander's trying to do. Like some buddies of mine and I, we got together and got the precons from last year with the tribal decks, and I had Edgar Markov uh, and the vampire deck. And there's you know Sanguine Bond in there with which is all about life gain and draining life. But Edgar Markov, he doesn't really care about gaining life. Lucia does, who is a secondary commander in the deck. You know, Lucia loves cards that gain life just because it makes her cheaper, and then you can pay life to buff her up, which is great. But, you know, with Edgar, it's Sanguine Bond still shows up at a pretty good clip, and it's just, it doesn't really fit the theme of the deck. I think the, the most egregious, you know, offender of, you know, multiple different deck types showing up on the wreck is Atraxa, who kind of, you know, made the precon effect famous because Proliferate is so good at doing so many different things, and people will do that, so, but you look at the wreck page, and you look, you know, you see Planeswalkers, you see Doubling Season, you see Tokens, you see Charge Counters and all sorts of different stuff. You even see Voltron. And not everybody's doing all those things in one deck. It's a lot of different decks being built different ways. But, you know, when you look at the rec page, it looks like everybody's just doing a mishmash. When in reality, that's not the case at all. Yeah, I think we can also see this sort of in the inverse where that affects the secondary commander as opposed to the primary commander. So, for example, going to Commander's 2017 products, you might take a look at Nazan Revered Bladesmith, who came in the Cat Tribal deck, and you'll see a lot of equipment, which is what Nazan in particular cares about, but you'll also see a lot of erroneous cat cards there for kind of no reason. You might go to the Cast Dissident Mage page, but because she came in Anala's Wizard Tribal deck, you'll see a bunch of wizards in her deck when maybe you don't need to see wizards there because she cares about spells and not about a particular creature type. So you can get those conflicting themes there among those precon decks as well. 
Well, and they've even gotten way better at that than they once were. I mean, for all the examples you guys gave for recent decks where there's stuff that doesn't overlap, if you go back, you know, three, four, five years to different sets, I mean, that Zendru deck, like that was in the first Commander Precon group that came out, there's almost no overlap between what Zendru wants to do and what Ruhan of the Formori wants to do and what Numa the Devastator wants to do. So at least nowadays, there's a little bit of overlap. Back in the day, those were radically disparate decks all crammed into one box. So I have a question for you guys then. What are some ways to recognize the precon effect? Any ideas? Write an article about it, right? <laughs> yeah, read, read Sam's article and you know it fixes everything for you. One thing I like to do, instead of just looking at the general page, use the themes menu because it trickles everything down so you're looking at a specific way to build. So like with Atraxa, you want to do Super Friends, it takes out all the tokens, takes out all you know the sub-themes that other people are playing, and it focuses everything down a little bit more specifically for you just to help you know drown out all the white noise that might be going on to distract you. That's a really good point, actually. Atraxa, as you mentioned earlier, has like over 4,200 decks, and she's kind of a mishmash, but you can use the theme selection tool on EDHREC to give it a theme of plus one counters, or a theme of planeswalkers, or a theme of minus one counters, or a theme of infect, so you can actually sort of differentiate to find the things that you would like to build around, and that might help eliminate some of the cards that are simply there because they came in the pre-con, and find cards that are more suited to the strategy that you would like to play. I also say, I think there's a degree of, like, if you just look full at the deck and, and try to identify, particularly if you're, if you're trying to shape your precon into a more specialized version of whatever the commander is you've chosen, it's a healthy thing to take a close look and try to identify, okay, was this specifically designed for my commander or was it designed for another commander? I mean, it, it's pretty easy to go through every one of your cards and actually just ask yourself that question. You can do it in, you know, 10 minutes, but... I think you really, you, you kind of want to do that a little bit too. You want to ask yourself, why is this in my deck versus just in the deck? Why is it in my deck? Well, it just requires a little bit of critical thinking skills on your part. You can't just copy paste, you know, what EDH Rex says to play because then you're, you're just going to get a pile that maybe doesn't make sense. So it's not as, as easy as it looks. You know, the website really becomes, you know, the more you use it, the better you are at finding different cards and, you know, becomes what you make of it really. Yeah, we're here to encourage smart deck building and not just deck building ad populum. So to help everyone sort of recognize the precon effect a little bit better, we're going to move on to a new segment here. What we're each going to do is name two cards that are kind of similar, and we'll try and have the others guess which of those cards sees more play. One of these cards is likely to be a precon card. So for example, my two cards here, I'm going to be talking specifically about in a Marin of Clan Neltoth deck. The two cards that I've picked are Wood Elves and Farhaven Elf. Wood Elves being a 3-mana 1-1 that goes and finds a forest for you, and Farhaven Elf being a 3-mana 1-1 that goes and finds a basic land for you. Which of these cards do you guys think is more popular in a Marin deck? Between Farhaven Elf or Wood Elf? Um, man. Probably, probably Wood Elves. When, when, when was the last Wood Elves printing, though? It was in a dual deck, wasn't it, with Elves versus something or other? That was a while ago, though. Of course, Farhaven Elf, I know, has been in a couple of precons, and I think, was it in a master set? I want to say it was. So your guess is Farhaven Elf then, Dana? I'm going to guess Farhaven Elf just by virtue of it being more readily available. I'm going to be a contrarian and say Wood Elves. 
I'm going to agree with my boss because I want my job back and say, what else? <laughs> you're not getting your job back, Matt. Dang if you it. get this wrong, you're getting fired again. I can I can report that he is not getting fired again. Wood Elves indeed is more popular in a Marin of Clan Neltoth deck. Nice. Sorry, Dana. Wood Elves shows up in 57% of Marin of Clan Neltoth decks. But here's the weird thing. Farhaven Elf doesn't appear on her page at all. Even though it's a very similar card to Wood Elves, nearly identical. The only difference is that it doesn't put the basic land that you get into play untapped, but it can get you a swamp if you like. It's just, it's very, it's astonishing to me that these two near identical cards have such disparate percentages in a Marin of Clan Thoth deck. Yes, Wood Elves can get you an overgrown tomb, but Farhaven Elf can also fix your mana as well. So that's really shocking to me. Were neither of them in that precon? And that's the thing. Wood Elves was in the precon, and that's why it's got such a higher percentage. Sure. Farhaven Elf wasn't in the precon. I only know it from the Shadowmoor printing, personally. And that explains why people wouldn't know as much about it, and therefore would neglect to include it. Okay. Dana, what about you? Do you have two cards for us that you'd like us to guess? I have two cards for you guys. Yes, indeed. Black Sun Zenith versus Toxic Deluge. Ooh. I'm, my vote's definitely going to be on Black Sun Zenith. And this isn't any particular deck, this is just index and EDH rack. So they're, they're kind of similar board wipes. Black Sun Zenith puts minus one, minus one counters on something. Deluge just gives things minus one, minus one for each life you spend. So they're not a perfect match, but they're very similar board wipes. I'm going to guess Black Sun as well. Just because you had uh, the black green commander that dealt with the minus one, minus one counters. I forget her name. Hapatra. Yeah, Hapatra. Apatra, yeah, with Apatra coming out. And then, like, Deluge was expensive for a little while, too. I think some people just didn't play it because they were priced out. What are you thinking, Jason? Jason, what's your guess? I was kind of thinking that um, people were priced out just because Deluge was too expensive. And, and when it did get reprinted, it was, you know, in a, in a master set. That So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm thinking Black Sun Zenith probably got played more, especially because of the, it got a lot of popularity around Hapatra times. So yeah, I, I, everything you guys said, I, I agree with. I agreed with you all as well before looking it up. I will also note that both cards have been in precons. Deluge is in C13, Zenith was in uh, C14, but Deluge is in almost 6,000 more decks than Black Sun Zenith. Wow. Really? Yeah. 6,000, that's quite the number. And the average, I mean, the card, it's like a 12 or $13 card, so the price has dropped, but Black Sun Zenith is not cheap. That's closing in on five for the non-promo version, and the, the full art promo is 15 So, I mean, there's a price difference, but people seem to be willing to pay that extra, you know, six, seven bucks to get the Deluge by a pretty large margin. I, I, I was surprised. I would, I would say that there's probably one potential weakness of EDH rec, and that is lying. Sure, yeah. <laughs> People can say, hey, I would put Toxic Deluge in this deck when they're just like theory crafting something online. I think we tend to we tend to just be a big old jet engine and we're sucking up parts of birds and, you know, branches and stuff. And we're just sort of like we're getting what's out there. You know, most of what we're trying to get is air to keep this plane aloft. But sometimes we're just going to get some some noise there. And uh, I think if someone's like, I got a Toxic Deluge. They can just say they've got it, but I don't think that's a big enough effect that like our data is suspect because I think that's sort of a, a thing that happens, but like it's sort of a, almost a wash because there's so much more signal from real stuff. But you know, we got 833 people saying they're running Tabernacle of Pendrel Vale in their EDH decks, <laughs> and 832 of them are from Don posting you know one deck list a bunch of times. Yeah, could be so. <laughs> 
So unless you think that 800 people, you know, have 833 unique decks that run Tabernacle, I, I think there's a tendency for people to be like, yeah, Toxic Deluge is expensive, but like, I'm just going to build this deck on paper and then slowly work up to my ideal version. I think that's a thing that happens sometimes, so that can sort of trick the pre-con effect, where if a card's a little cheaper because it's more prevalent, if there is a strictly better version of it, I think people will sort of wishlist it and will tend to register a deck with that in there. So anytime you get something that's a little bit counterintuitive, I think that's a possible explanation for stuff like that. Well, there is one thing that we should take into account, and that's that Toxic Deluge, as Dana mentioned, came in the Commander 2013 product in the Olero deck. It currently shows up in 1,200 Olero decks, and Olero is the fourth most popular commander of all time, currently sitting at 2,700 decks. So that also kind of explains why Toxic Deluge might show up more often than Black Sun Zenith. It also did show up in a precon, but that precon wasn't as popular as the Olero precon. Not all precons are created equal because not all precon effects are created equal. I could see that, yeah. So, Jason, what about you? Okay, well, uh, I had two precon cards, so I think this will really show how this can happen. Um, I've got Darksteel Ingot and Felwarstone. Which of those do you think is going to be registered more decks on EDA track? My bet is on Darksteel Ingot. Okay. You got a reason for that? Or are you just guessing? Because you can win a coin flip pretty easily. (laughs) I am just guessing. But Felwar Stone, that one strikes me as very popular, particularly because of the uh, popularity of the Commander 2016 product with all of the four-color commanders. Felwar Stone is very, very good in a four-color environment, and I believe it was printed several times in that product. But Darksteel Ingot has shown up more over time. I don't know, when I first started playing Commander with the Commander 2011 product, I remember having a Darksteel Ingot in the decks that I played then. So I would just say, given the bias of time, and given that Darksteel Ingot has probably shown up in more precons, that would be why it has a, a higher popularity. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with Ingot as well. I mean, I, I think back to when I first started playing Commander, and I'm like going to build multiple decks. I made that first order for multiple cards, and I, I picked up like five Darksteel Ingots because my assumption would be it's going to go in every deck I ever build. And it was in a few core sets. I think Felwar Stone is probably, on average, a better card in most decks. But I I don't know if, if your average player knows that. And it also you know requires you to dig a little bit deeper to find it, maybe, if it wasn't in your precon. So I, I would say mathematically the odds are Ingot is going to be in more decks, even if it maybe shouldn't be. Yeah, I, I'm coming from the spikier point of view here. I like I prefer Ingot over Felwar Stone personally every day, but like Joey said, I think the the partners in the four color decks really had a pretty big influence on that. So I think Felwar Stone probably gets played a little bit more, maybe. Well, okay, that was all solid logic, um, but I kind of wanted to show that you know not all precon effects are equal because while they were both in a lot of Commander precons. Fall War Stone was in four, and Dark Stealing it was in seven. So uh, the fact that one was in twice as many decks and doesn't get played twice as much is a little bit telling, I think. But Dark Stealing it is in uh, about forty thousand decks, and Fall War Stone's in about twenty five thousand. So there's there's like a big difference there, and I think it it has a lot to do with the fact that one's in twice as many precons. They're both in precons, but one's in twice as many. Yeah, and as you can see, just with our discussion here, some of us are saying that Felwar Stone is a better card, some of us are saying that Darksteel Ingot deserves the slot, but there's some contention on which one is better, and yet if you were to just look at the data, 
you would see that people clearly prefer one over the other. But that is, again, just one of those things that we see as a result of time and the result of number of precons as opposed to people simply choosing one that is better. Matt, how about yours? So I, I got one. So it's in Saskia, the unyielding deck. So the four color commander, no blue. I've got Boros Charm versus Heroic Intervention. What do you guys think is played more? Ooh. That's a good comparison. That is a very good one. Yeah, bo- both are all about that, in- you know, the indestructibility, anti-board wipe tech. Uh, I'm I'm gonna have to say Boros Charm. I think that the because uh, Boros Charm can make things indestructible, can deal four damage, and can give something double strike. Is that is that yes, right? Yes, correct. I think that the double strike is extra valuable for Saskia, so I'm gonna guess that that one sees more play. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Boros Charm as well. Intervention is also relatively new, so I don't know if it's gonna show up in as many decks. And just from personal experience, that was one of those cards that. I kind of glossed over when it first got printed, and I think a lot of people did as well. I mean, even though like, if you think about it or see it get played, you realize how ridiculous it really is. But I think it took people a little while to realize that, uh, whereas they've had a lot longer to understand exactly how powerful Boros Charm is. So I'm going to go with Boros Charm. I'm going to go with Intervention, just because it would be boring if we all said Boros <laughs> Charm. Yeah, well, it, it is Boros Charm. Because uh, it was in the, the pre-con deck. Um, and, and Saskia may not be the best example of this, because Boros Charm is in 55% of Saskia decks. There's over 1,600 Saskia decks, whereas Intervention's only in 18%. That low? I thought it was really low. It's only 18% because... Of like, Saskia decks? Of Saskia decks. Well, that's a card you got to add in versus not take out, right? Right. And that's the difference. Yeah. You got to go buy a, a $5 card that you know is going to lose some value at, at rotation and jam that in there versus getting a free Boros Charm in the deck. Right. But that is the lesson that we're trying to take away here is that Heroic sure. Intervention is, it really warrants being in a creature aggressive Saskia deck, mm-hmm. just like Boros Charm. But a difference of 18% to 55%, that's just unacceptable. Yeah. Well, and like Dana said, it's kind of been slow to catch on, but once people see it in action, I think people are a little more, you know, open to springing that five bucks for it because it's been kind of a slow burner. And, you know, Boros Charm has been around for a way longer time, too. But so total decks, Boros Charm has been in over 13,000 decks on EDHREC, whereas Heroic Intervention's already in over 6,500. So it's a little less than half. And considering how new it is, I think it's going to be one that people look to keep adding. Like what Jason said, when rotation comes, gets cheaper, maybe a couple bucks. Boros Charm is three cards, though. Well, it it's kind of it's kind of two. I mean, I've never really domed anybody with it in EDH as much as that, like the only mode anybody knows in like modern and legacy. Mm-hmm. But uh, I kind of think those modular cards kind of get a nod because they're they're taking up multiple spots. So it's almost like having access to a main deck and a sideboard card at the same time. And uh, maybe I'm just saying that because I love to murder people with Rakdos Charm because they have to they have to read Rakdos Charm. They're like, this draws like an artifact, right? I'm like, no, you're dead. You just took 40 damage. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. your fault. Oh, that happened to me last week, actually. <laughs> That's it, Heroic Intervention, though, in a lot of ways is the same thing, too. Like, you can single target save something someone's trying to destroy, or you can use it to keep your board in response to a Wrath, or you can use it to keep your board when you want a Wrath to kill someone this turn. I mean, it's it's not a modular spell per se, but it kind of plays like a modular spell. 
Yeah, and it definitely deserves to see more play than 18% of Saskia decks. I think we can all agree on that. Yeah, especially with a deck that wants to win through creature combat, saving those creatures to get through combat is is pretty relevant. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah. So we've talked about a couple of cards that we can detect have their their numbers have been influenced by the precon effect. But I'm curious, what are some of the ways that we can straight up avoid the precon effect? Any ideas? In our own deck building or yeah, what are some practices that you employ to try and avoid the uh, the folly of the precon effect to make sure that you're building as optimally as you can? Don't build precon commanders, duh. <laughs> cut cut deeper. You know why don't why don't you uh, why don't you start instead of taking the 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 hundred cards and kind of taking stuff out? Maybe add all that other stuff to your collection and then start from the ground up and and build up. You know, because if you're starting from a, a position of like, I have 100 cards until I cut 40 of them, then you're going to end up kind of with some cards that are, they, they, they seem fine. Hey, they're in the pre-con for a reason. Oh, this kind of works with a third of the deck, you know? It, it works about a third as well as something else because it, it could work with any of the three possible commanders versus a card that works with the way I want to build the deck. So if you're if you're coming from a position of ah oh, this is probably too good to take out, you might leave some junk in. But if you start from the ground up and then you're so, all of a sudden like, do I really put this in? Well, I think this works better with you know the commander I'm not using. So maybe I'm just going to set that aside. I, I think that avoids some of that. I, I I think a card having to make its case for inclusion versus having to make an easier case for not being taken out. I think that'll play less to your laziness and it'll play more to your creativity. So just take the stuff out, add it to your collection, and then build from the ground up. Or or even if you want to take the full pre-con, like if you want to take those full 100 cards and put them in a list, I mean, if you're just taking them and then like, okay, what do I want to pull out to find something better? You're going to make excuses to leave things in there. But if you want to take those 100 cards and then just like, okay, I'm going to add anything that I think is remotely interesting in these colors to get to 140 and then cut down from there. I think you're going to find yourself cutting a lot more of those cards when they have something in the list they're competing with, so to speak. Like when that card has to be lined up head to head to make the cut, you're much more likely to make that choice than you are when there's nothing to compare it to. And Matt, you mentioned something earlier that I, I mean, you were kind of joking saying don't build precon commanders, but that is something that we definitely notice. If Saskia hadn't come from a precon, but she had just been in any old random set, the difference between heroic intervention and Boros Charm probably wouldn't be as significant as we see it being now. Oh, 100%. So, so you can sort of look to non-precon commanders for ideas if they fall into a similar vein. So I mentioned, for example, that's one of the things that I do with the Commander Showdown series. I compare things like Brago and Rune. Rune came from a precon, but Brago did not. So if you're looking for ideas on things to blink, you might be able to get some inspiration from the non-precon commander of Brago because people aren't being influenced by things that were already in the 99. And one thing that we've we've been talking a lot about 
you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, the commander, what's in the 99. And one thing that I like to do personally, and, and I kind of use this to mold a lot of my articles and how I write and, you know, bring decks from a 60 card format to EDH, is you can start with a card in the 99 and then zoom out. You don't have to take, you know, zoom in on a certain commander. You can look at cards that people are playing and then look at, you know, what kind of commanders is being played in, what are cards being played next to it, and then pick your commander down the road. You know, for what I wrote in an Animar article talking about Eldrazi, I just looked up Reality Smasher and saw, you know, it's in, you know, 6,000 decks or so, um, but what's being played next to it? And, you know, I saw there were a lot of, you know, red, green, um, a little bit of blue. Uh, and so, you know, as I started going down the top played cards, top played commanders, I was able to piece together, man, Animar, making all my creatures cheaper. It's going to, you know, I'm going to be able to cast, you know, these massive 10 drop Eldrazi's and maybe pay two mana for it. Um, and that's how I piece all my articles together. You know, I, I did a tribal deck on fairies and I looked at Scion of Una, which was paid, played in a bunch of fairy decks back in standard. And then I was able to zoom out and still, you know, keep that essence, but found a, you know, what was going to be a good fit for that card that I wanted to build around, not the commander that I wanted to build around. Neat. That's an, an angle that I don't usually employ, but that is some really good advice. Another thing that I tend to use to try and avoid the precon effect, and I hope this doesn't sound too advanced, but I am going to be talking about the advanced filters on EDH rec. And we won't get too far into it because advanced filters is definitely a topic that we could do on a whole future show. But one thing that I like to do is once I've identified a card that I consider to be sort of suboptimal from the original precon, for example, I mentioned Marin of Clan Naltoth earlier, there's the Viridian Zealot came in that deck, or Champion of Stray Souls, and when I looked at those, I was kind of like, eh, I'm not sure that these will make my final cut. And once I acknowledged that those were cards that maybe I didn't want to play with, I could go to Marin's EDH rec page, use the advanced filters to find decks that didn't include those cards, and then I could see cards that were recommended for me based on other people who had made the same conclusions as I did, and therefore see decks that had less of those precon cards in them and try and filter for more of the cards that would be specific to my particular desired strategy. And we referred to those cards as noise earlier in the cast, and that's, that's a good way to filter out noise and you get to see the other signals that they might have been hiding. Yeah, and you can even just go to the, now that we're linking deck lists directly, you can look at you know, see that pe- that person's complete 99 and you might be able to see, you know, why did they choose this card over this card? Oh, well, they're playing it with this. That makes sense. So we're just adding all these tools in that, you know, we're going to talk about them eventually in future episodes. Um, so don't feel overwhelmed when we're throwing all this information at you. But, you know, it's, it's something that we want to set up, you know, for the future with how to use the site better. So I have another question for you guys. I'm kind of curious if there are some precon commanders that can avoid the precon effect. I mentioned Cast Dissident Mage maybe being influenced a little bit by Enala being in the Wizard Tribal preconstructed deck, but I also think that there's room for an argument there that Kess and Marisil and Inala, since they all have very different themes to each of their particular commander strategies, that we see the precon effect less on each of their individual pages. Since they all have different strategies, we don't see as much overlap with cards that came from the precon. Actually, I built three different decks from that Wizards precon. Yeah, exactly. There was that, that was that little overlap. It was like, all right, here are the Marisol cards. They're pretty obvious. So I just kind of took those out, and uh, I had a lot left over. Maybe that's because I was cutting a little deep. But, I mean, as much as all three of those decks are boring to me now, especially Marisol, because I, I was like, this is the most interesting one. And then I was like, nope, there's one way to build this. Uh, but I think uh, the fact that they didn't, 
try as much to like, oh, let's put a card that sort of works with all three of these wildly different things. Instead, they're just like, well, we'll put some cards that are good with this, but they're still wizards, whatever. Like, I think if one of them has a very vague theme, that really helps some of the cards, you know, just kind of get included. It's like, ah, what doesn't do anything with this guy? But it's a wizard and he likes wizards. Well, and that's just it. The wizard pre-constructed deck actually got a lot of flack for not being able to win right out of the box very well. And that's because its themes were so completely divided. Anala was wizard tribal. Marisil didn't cooperate very well with any of those because he just cared about activated abilities. And Kess was like, I don't want creatures at all or your artifacts, Marisil. I just want to play spells. So the deck was very heavily divided. But then if. Yeah, the deck wanted a lot of creatures and it wanted a lot of spells. Yeah, but then if you're if you look at their commander pages on EDH Rec, you might see that there's less of that overlap, which is kind of nice. That's one way to avoid the the precon effect as well. That you can see that those cards that came in the precon for Inala do sort of belong there because they fit that theme, and you won't see them as much in a Marisil or in a Kess deck. Have you guys had the same experience or no? It's almost like the worse the the precon is designed, the less you experience the precon effect. <laughs> Well, I think it also depends on the players, too. Like, Jason can look at that Arcane Wizardry deck and pretty easily pick out what cards go with which commander. But I think if you are a relatively inexperienced and new player, the fact that they're all wizards is probably going to throw you. You're like, oh, well, they're probably all good, right? Because they're all wizards. Versus something like, I mentioned the uh, Zendra deck before, where it's just so blatantly, like, half the cards don't remotely work with Ruhan versus Zendru. So even a new player can be like, wow, this is not, this card does not belong in my deck. Um, whereas with Arcane Wizardry, well, a new player might be like, well, I guess it's a wizard. So I think it, a lot of it depends on the, the experience level of the person looking at the deck. Yeah, just to kind of highlight what I mean with, uh, for example, the Arcane Wizardry deck, if we look at the Kess Dissident Mage EDH rec page, her most popular creatures are Notion Thief, which is a rogue, Talrand Sky Summoner, which is a wizard, and then Jace Friend's Prodigy, which is a wizard, but which is also a planeswalker. And the wizard of Talrand, he just cares that you cast spells. So we can see that there's a lot less bias towards all of the wizardy cards that came in that deck, because Kess doesn't care. So... I mean, to put it a little more bluntly like Jason did, yeah, if the deck is more divided, if it isn't as clean playing it right out of the box, it does seem like we can avoid some of the, uh, the pre-con effect going forward. Also say, I would, guess, I would also guess that Arcane Wizardry deck probably just, just by virtue of being kind of a complicated deck and being three colors probably appealed to a little more, I don't know if spiky is the right word, but a little more advanced player than maybe the cat deck or the dragon deck, which is just, you know, much more geared to people who just want to smash stuff together. So I think, I wonder if that isn't also a factor there, because it's a deck that's kind of pitched to people who are maybe better at sorting those cards out. Spike's not a swear word, you can say it. <laughs> like, the, this is the person who plays, you know, Grixis, Snapcaster, Control, and Modern, sure. you know? And they, they look at that, they're like, oh, man, look at Kess. Or they're like, hey, look at Kess, I'm going to play that in Legacy. Because that's what people did. So I, sometimes you got dragons, and, like, dragons are just going to appeal to somebody, you know? They're going to appeal to some of the, the Timmier players, and why not have something for Spike, too? So I don't I don't think it's insulting anybody to say that the wizards deck was a little bit more aimed at some of the spikier players and 
the way they're tuning the deck up and they're adding stuff like damnation and and gamble you know, and Yogmas will. That's stuff that like someone who bought the Dragon Precon wouldn't wouldn't even necessarily really know to to add to decks. So, I think that it's it's kind of fine that they made a deck that appealed to people that were going to mostly add cards from their collection. They're like, don't worry, I got the demonic tutors and the serum visions and the, you know, the past and flames. I've got all that stuff ready. You don't need to give me that. I'm, I'll just take the stuff I need. And actually, Dana, you do bring up an excellent point talking about the difference in like what player base those decks appeal to. Because I just looked up the Nizan Revered Bladesmith deck, which came in the Arabo Cat Precon deck that you mentioned. And yeah, if we look at his creatures, we actually can see Kasali Slingers, which is a cat tribal card that destroys artifacts or enchantments whenever you play more cats. That shows up in 49% of Nizan decks. Farther down the page, we see that Fleece Mane Lion shows up in 46%, and that's just a 2-mana 3-3 that is also a cat. You can monsterfy it, but it's not that interesting. Those are really great cards for the Arabo deck. They're not really what you'd want to play in a deck like Nizan where you just want equipment, and yet we do see the precon effect rear its ugly head there again because of the effect that you mentioned. All I can say is how dare you say fleece main line is boring. <laughs> I'm a watch wolf man. True and true. I'm sorry. My favorite creature of all time. Well, I, I just quick l- briefly looked this up, but Jason mentioned Yogmas will. There's a lot more Yogmas will, which is a reserve list card. And it's a relatively expensive card in cast decks. And there are Berserk in Arabo decks, and I would say that those are kind of comparable because Berserk is a pretty fantastic card in a deck where your creature is getting plus three, plus three, and then plus X, plus X on top of it. Berserk is just going to kill people pretty frequently. Plus, Berserk is a Berserk's a card that anybody had a chance right. to open in a booster pack recently, and it's in less decks so, than Yogmas Will, and I think that kind of tells us a little bit about who's building those particular decks. Yeah. Well, the takeaway here is that, unfortunately, severe differences in a deck's primary or secondary or tertiary commanders don't help necessarily avoid the precon effect, which I was kind of hoping that it would, but we don't have conclusive proof of that just yet. Alrighty, guys, so I want to move on to a new segment. I am in the mood to challenge some statistics that we see here on EDHREC. I love the site, I love what it does, but sometimes we have to raise a, a critical eye towards the statistics on the website. You guys ready? Well, if, if the st- statistics are bad or misleading on the site, it's, it's the fault of the people that submitted their decks. Come on, you can't blame us for... <laughs> we're just reporting the news, we don't make the news. It's not personal, it's just business. Yep, so... We, we don't ruin the format, we just let people know that they're ruining the format for themselves. <laughs> So in our version of Pick of the Week, we're each going to pick a card that we think has some incorrect statistics on EDHREC. For my pick this week, I'm actually going to go off with Windfall in the Yidris Maelstrom Wielder deck. I really like Yidris. I built a deck for him. I also really like Windfall. I put that card in a different deck, Windfall being the three-mana blue sorcery that has everyone pitch their hand and then draw cards equal to the greatest number of cards discarded this way. That does not belong in a Yidris deck, and yet it shows up currently at 53% of Yidris decks because it came in the pre-constructed deck for Yidris. The problem is that it came in that pre-con, sure, but it came in that pre-con to synergize with Kaidel, who taps for mana whenever you draw a bunch of cards. So people are just running it out of habit, and because it's a fine card, but it's a good card not for that particular commander. It's good it's for Kaidel. Wor- it's worse than that because it inspired people to jam as many wheels as they could jam in Yidris decks. Like, Yidris wheels 
is actually like a, a sub theme that you can f- find uh, on EDH rack. There are enough Yidris Wheels decks that like it's a whole sub theme you can search yeah, for because like Dark Deal and Whispering because Madness. it was in the precon. Everyone's like, oh, what if we put Wheel of Fortune and Winds of Change in here too and got all the wheels going? Like uh, it's not Nekasar, so. I'm exactly. not sure what you're doing. Wheeling all those cards doesn't do anything for Yidris. When I built him, I built him just around getting as many cascade triggers as I possibly could, so I went for extra combat steps. Because whenever he hits people, you get more cards. It doesn't matter that I'm discarding a bunch of cards. I'm not going to do anything with that. I just want to hit people and get a ton of value from it. So Windfall, you're out of my deck. That doesn't belong in a Yidris deck. It does belong in a Kaidel deck. Well, not only does it not belong in your Yidris deck, it, it's an actively damaging card in a lot of situations. Like, Windfall is a great card if you are a player who understands when to cast Windfall and how to use it to your advantage. If you're not, Windfall helps other players win the game if you're not paying attention. Yeah. See, Dana, you get it. Like, I, I've won I've won games because I've won games because other people have cast Windfalls at bad times. Yeah. So, Dana, what is your pick this week? Uh, my pick is out of the Attracts deck, uh, Bread for the Hunt is in 2,000 decks in Atraxa. It is a one green and a blue enchantment, so three mana. And it says, whenever a creature you control with a plus one counter on it deals combat damage to a player, you may draw a card. Well, why do you hate this one in Atraxa? It sounds fantastic. I don't think it should be in probably any Atraxa decks. I don't know if it should be in any decks, period. That's strong. Why not? There's too many conditions on the card. Like that's 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 if if you're playing a card, I think you need to do a little bit of evaluation on what things need to occur for that card to do what you want it to do. And in the case of Red for the Hunt, you need to cast it and have it remain in play through your combat phase. You have to have creatures to benefit from it. Those creatures need to deal combat damage, and those creatures need to have plus one counters on them. So you need to meet like four different variables in order to actually have the card do anything at all. Um, that is way too many things that you probably can't control to hope to draw a couple of cards. Right. One of the best features of a card that uh, of any spell that draws cards for you is that it can help you catch back up. But bread for the hunt is really only good if you're already ahead. Well, I mean, you absolutely. There are there are situations I'm sure where someone had to their attracts a deck and they had you know eight creatures in play with plus one counters on it and they drew eight cards and thought it was the most amazing thing ever. But if you're in that position to take advantage of bread for the hunt, you're probably already in a position to win the game. Yeah, I can totally see it. Matt, what about you? So I have a card that actually I I had a different card before, but I went through the other day and I was updating my Narset deck um, because I was one of those people who had boring Narset, take every turn, kill him slowly with Karn. You know, Henry's favorite person, our editor Henry, every every stereotype you can think of, he he believes in about Narset players. And I was one of them, Um, but I was going through updating my 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 deck uh, and I'm switching over to token theme. And I noticed I didn't have a whole lot of removal so I was digging through my collection, and I found a card that is both removal and makes tokens um, that I think is terribly underplayed, because um, even though it wasn't a pre-con, it, it gets cut quite a bit. Um, that card is Entrapment Maneuver. Um, so it's, you know, target player sacrifices an attacking creature, so it is a little conditional. You know, they, they can sacrifice more than one creature, or more than, you know, a targeted creature. Um, 
but you create X 1-1 soldier tokens where X is that creature's toughness. So if you're playing against somebody who you know, likes to play Voltron, uh, you know, the play hexproof creatures, it's really good about around getting around that. So, you know, somebody tries to dome you with Prosh because it was in it was in Masters 25. You get to blow up their creature for one, and two, you get your own tokens back. So Dana, you probably wouldn't like it because you know there are some conditions built into it. <laughs> but if you can hit something good, great, you know, if you're playing it with Perforos like most token decks do, you're going to do some real work with it. So I really like it. Uh, currently, as it stands, it's in about 1,200 decks. Most of them are, are pre-cons because it's the, it was in the uh, Kaneos and Tiro deck. But yeah, it goes from 316 decks as the most played deck all the way down to 69. So it's not getting a whole lot of play in decks that aren't pre-cons is, is the big takeaway there. And I think it's something that if you're playing tokens, you need an extra piece of removal, you're already playing Path and Plow and all that, definitely keep an eye out for that, for, for Entrapment Maneuver. That's kind of an interesting thing that you point out at the end there, that there is almost an inverse pre-con effect, that people kind of don't include those cards in decks where they do belong because they keep them in the pre-con to which, in which they arrived. Mm-hmm. So people fail to put cards where they do belong just because they're keeping them in, in the thing. That, that's a pretty interesting effect that we see as a, a secondary effect of the pre-con effect. Yeah, the, the, biggest, the biggest offender of that... Uh, that I've noticed is Teferi's response. Teferi's response is incredible. Or Teferi's protection, I'm sorry. The the white one that was in uh, the Vampire's deck. That card has won me so many games, but nobody plays it a whole lot because they were kind of priced out and they didn't take it out of the Vampire deck and put it in the other more fun decks that it might be good in. Right, that's another one that could go in that Saskia deck we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. It's It's going in my Tokens deck. Yeah, and as you mentioned with the Entrapment Maneuver, I just looked up Risk the Redeemed, and yeah, that seems like a really solid commander to put an Entrapment Maneuver into, and yet it doesn't show up on his page whatsoever. It doesn't show up at all. Yeah, I think it would be a lot of fun to Entrapment Maneuver someone's creature and then double all the tokens I get from it with Reese, but unfortunately, no. Well, it's probably also a card that flexes a lot based on what your particular meta is. Like, if you're playing with a bunch of people that play tokens decks or are playing, you know, goblins or elves or something, and you're routinely getting swung at for, with you know, four or five creatures simultaneously that are all fairly small, that card's almost always going to be a bust for you. But if you're playing in a, you know, smaller meta where you routinely are seeing that Ural deck or a Rafik deck sorted up or, you know, Kemba wearing a bunch of different pieces of equipment, and there's, those are all swinging in at you solo... That card might well be the best removal spell in your in your deck in that environment. It's going to kill something that's huge and make you a game-winning amount of tokens next turn. So that's the kind of card that probably radically flexes its usefulness depending on who you play with. Yeah, it's it's either the best card or the worst card. But uh, in in my play group, I know it's probably going to be pretty good. I I don't know. I haven't gotten to play any actual games with the with the the new deck set up yet, but. I'm really excited, and when I saw it was only in 1,200 decks, just seemed off for some reason because it's it sacrifices too, so it's it gets around indestructible, it gets around hexproof, gets around a lot of different things. So, yeah, yeah, I like it. Jason, how about you? Do you have a card for us? I have a card called Fractured Identity that was in the Dragon Freakon. Yeah, man, it is in 23% of the registered Ur Dragon decks on the website and uh, it need not be. That is a card <laughs> for Tygam, Ojutai Master, because you double it. That card's great with rebound. Um, it's not so great in an Ur Dragon deck. It seems like a waste 
of a spot, but it's in like a quarter of the decks, and I uh, I don't agree with that. A fractured identity was a card a lot of us on the website liked. We we uh, did our like Commander twenty seventeen roundup. I think everybody had it in their top ten. Well, everyone except Dana. <laughs> yeah, it's not really performing as well as anybody thought because it's a little too fair. I think. Um, I was like, dude, I would just rather give you life than give everybody a Consecrated Sphinx. What, what's going on right now? Um, but I, I like it in Tygen builds, and naturally there's a bias toward Ur-Dragon just because there are three times as many Ur-Dragon decks on the site as there are Tygen decks, but it's still played in a full quarter of Ur-Dragon decks, and that's dumb. There's no point. Uh, also, why aren't you building Tygam decks? Like, when I saw the dragon list, that was literally the only card I was excited about in all 100 cards. So, I don't know. Build more Tygam Oju Tie Master decks and put Fractured Identity in them instead of playing the Ur Dragon and putting Fractured Identity in that. That just seems. It seems overrepresented in the part of the deck that it clearly wasn't intended for. And I think it's just because people are like. I'm not going to build Tygam. He's out. I'm going to build Ur Dragon. Oh, this is a spell I can play because I'm five colors. All right, let's keep it. I like it. I like I like Tygam as well. I thought he was a really fun commander. I also wanted to do mean things like Decree of Silence and Solemnity with him. So what do I know? You're a mean person, Mr. Morgan. I am. I'm probably the spikiest person on this podcast right now, and I can I can admit that. So, Jason, you mentioned something in talking about Fractured Identity there that kind of made me think of another angle on the Precon effect, another one of its side effects, if you will. And that's that a lot of people built the Ur-Dragon, but very few people built Tygum. And another thing that we can sort of see from the Precon effect is that those headliner commanders get a lot of press. If we look at the top commanders of all time, let's see, of the top 21, two-thirds are commanders that came from precon decks with Atraxa, Marin, and Brea, and Olero. It's not until you get to Omnath, Locus of Rage, and Brago, and Alesha that you see any commanders that came from any product that wasn't a precon. So another thing to keep in mind is that those commander precons don't just dictate what cards people will play in the decks, but also what decks people play. That's another thing for us to keep in mind as we go forward with this podcast. It's because everybody gets so hyped up about the, the headlining cards that they push them so hard that you know, those secondary cards, they kind of get blended in with the rest of the 99 cards and everybody kind of forgets about them. And in the case of Tygum, I think I, I mentioned this a little bit before, but the the person who's looking for that that Ur-Dragon deck and that playstyle that comes with it maybe isn't somebody who's that interested in the playstyle that comes with the Tygum deck. Those are pretty different ways to build and play your deck, and then there's maybe not a, not a lot of overlap there either. So I've got some wrapping up questions here for you guys. We've talked a lot about some things that we dislike about the precon effect, but is there anything that we do like about it? Is there anything good that happens as a result of the precon effect? You are, you are, if someone's new to EDH especially, you are telling them, hey, look at the way this deck is built. Look how many lands we've got. Look at the fact that it's got... Kodama's reach and cultivate. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we have so many creatures that go search for land? Why do you think there are so many mana rocks? You know, you you're basically saying, hey, this isn't perfect, but this is sort of the ratio you want to try to achieve. So like maybe you don't choose between Fell War Stone and uh Dark Steel Ingot, because maybe you want to run both. So I think the precon effect uh, 
it's not great for optimizing a deck, but I think it, the fact that the stuff that's in there and in the ratios it's in uh, is very instructive to new players. So when they take out a card, there might they might not take out Felwar Stone and replace it with, you know, something like Tassiger. They might replace it with something similar, just because they keep those ratios the same. And if they if they do that the first time they rebuild a precon, it might not be perfect and it might not be that much better than the precon. But I think they're kind of learning. Oh man, if I left I left this the same and I was shuffling up and getting hands that was like, you know, two lands and a mana rock or three lands and a cultivate, and that's that's kind of how you go off. And everything curved out nice for me, and I, I kind of had the right amount of removal because there were two or three removal cards, and I got one when I needed it, stuff like that. So I. It's it's not great for people like us, but I think for the 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 intended purpose of getting people who don't play EDH to play EDH, having the precon structured the way it is, I think is really instructive to people. And I I think it'll if they sort of use that as a template to build their own deck, they'll end up with a deck that it at least plays magic you know that's a really good point actually those those ratios i've seen that too like in in real life examples people that that buy that precon and then maybe don't even use the 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 commanders from it but like buy the precon play a little bit then go to build their own deck the deck they build tends to mirror the precon in regards to ratios so it's it's a playable deck they have their removal they've got their ramp they've got some draw it might not be perfect but it roughly parallels those decks and it gives you something that's playable versus I've had people that I've known that have gotten into commander and shown up with a deck that they've homebrewed themselves without using EDH rack without using a template from a precon and they show up with 40 lands and 45 creatures and a bunch of mana rocks and have no removal and no board wipes and like they've built something that's that's awful because they didn't have anything to go by. So I, I think it absolutely gives people a guideline to steer them for their deck building down the road. Yeah, it almost like teaches people how to build a deck on accident, it teaches those principles and doesn't give a name to it. Because when you say, oh, you need to play more ramp to a brand new player, they're not going to know what you're talking about. But then they're like, oh, you mean, you, know, you explain it out, you know, you get more lands you know, you get three lands on turn two or whatever. Like, oh, you mean like cultivate? So they'll know what the cards are and know what they do, but it teaches those principles and helps, you know, introduce them, like I said, almost by accident because, you know, it doesn't mean to um, give it a name. That's where we come in. That's where the site comes in, where we can, you know, help piece everything together that you you kind of know already, but you haven't been able to identify. And like I said, that we'll, you know, we'll cover all those different things, all those tools that you have, you know, in future episodes, but yeah, it's it's not intentionally teaching you how to build a deck, but it is. Do you see any pros for enfranchised players, though? Is there anything that people who have built a deck before and don't necessarily need their hand held? One thing for me is that it does provide level-up moments, and maybe this is sort of a fusion between advanced and inexperienced players, uh, but when I mentioned, for example, the Wood Elves and the Farhaven Elf thing from before, when... I had the moment of, oh, I could put Farhaven Elf into this Marin deck. It felt like I was growing as a player. So recognizing cards that came in the precon and finding other things that are fairly similar to it, things that might even be better, it helps me feel like I'm growing as a player and becoming a more efficient deck builder. So the precon effect is useful in order to escape from it, I guess. 
Yeah, just seeing those parallels between similar cards, like you see Vigor and Doubling Season and Parallel Lives and all those, you know, you start to, you know, build that base knowledge of just what do cards do, what is a similar card, and you can just keep adding and adding and adding. You know, you look at Gather and you find a new card every day. You know, I, I know you do that on nearly any deck. So It also gives you a chance to reconsider cards that maybe if you're being, I don't know if elitist is the right word, but like if you secure in your own knowledge, perhaps dismissed, and you look at those lists repeatedly, like, man, Exotic Orchard is in a lot of these three-color decks, and these four-color decks, these five-color decks, and I, who have dual lands, maybe didn't put it in my deck, but when you see it repeatedly in those decks, and then see people who are playing those pre-cons play Exotic Orchard, and you certainly have to, like, you know what, I know it's a 60-cent card, but in my five-color deck, that's almost always going to make me three or four or five colors of mana that I use. Man, maybe I should be using that instead of this other expensive card that isn't nearly as effective. So it does make you kind of reconsider more humble cards, maybe the way to phrase it, that you, as an advanced player, might have dismissed. EDH Rec tends to take a snapshot of someone's deck list at the moment they submit it, right? So they're like, all right, I got the pre-con, I... Cut it open, got all stuff in. Yeah, this is uh, this is how I think I want it. Click. And then they go and play it, and they're like, oh, man, why am I running Trigon Predator? Holy crap. So they take the Trigon Predator out, but we still have that card overrepresented in our database just because they registered it. So I think to an extent, if someone learns a lesson by playing, it's going to be overrepresented on our, our website, and those lessons don't necessarily show up. But that's... That's something about the precon effect where it's like you were going to play a substandard card because of the precon effect and you're going to learn a lesson when you play. So I think that sort of teaches people to like, oh, man, this un- this underperformed for me. I'm going to find a substitute. You learn by doing as much as you learn by sitting and tinkering with uh, 100 cards on a playmat. So I think those moments don't necessarily get scraped. So we don't necessarily know about them, but they are happening. You know, people are learning to play Magic better by playing, and that's not something that our data can necessarily show. But the good thing about the precon effect is, is if it makes somebody play a substandard card, it's going to teach them how to recognize a substandard card when they play with it, and that's a valuable lesson as well. So, if you have any last-minute advice to any new players out there when they just get a precon, what should they do? Play the deck. Just play. Enjoy it. Like, there's nothing nearly as fun as just cracking open a deck and just not even sleeving it yet. Just sitting down, playing with your buddies. Sleeve it, you monster. Don't listen to this guy. Sleeve it. (laughs) No, knuckle shuffle your duels. (laughs) Be a real savage. Oh, my Black Lotus went to the graveyard. (laughs) Rip. (laughs) We play Iron Man. Yeah, I would definitely say to play it, but then also when you're looking to improve that deck, I would advocate trying to look at it as though that commander came in a regular set and not from a precon. Try and build from scratch. Pretend that you're building from the ground up, as Jason said, and not from 100 and taking stuff out. Or I would say all of those things and build the deck up to 120 or 130 or 140 cards. Take that list and then say, okay... um, I also am aware of these five mana rocks and these six draw spells and these seven creatures that I like from standard and from another format that aren't in the precon. So throw them in the list and then make when you're then, then make cuts and force those cards to compete with cards from the precon. 
make them earn that spot versus just eyeballing it and saying, yeah, I'll leave it. Like, justify it when you're cutting down. Make something be good enough to put in and not just good enough not to take out. That's how you make a better deck. All right, well, I think we're going to leave it there. Those were our thoughts on EDHREC and the Precon Effect, but for now, we're going to call it. You can follow EDHREC on Facebook and Twitter at EDHREC, and you can subscribe on the EDHREC subreddit if you have a question or possibly a request for a new site feature. Uh, P.S. If the EDHREC Facebook page gets 5,000 likes, there's going to be a giveaway, so head on over there and smash that like button for a chance at a cool prize. You can check out Dana's other podcast at commandercentral.libsyn.com. You can check out Jason's other podcasts at brainstormbrewery.com and at moneydraft.com is that correct actually that's where the new money draft gets posted but i i like that you're looking out <laughs> and you can find those podcasts and more on edhrex very own community content spotlight section where we feature many other commander content creators as many as we can from the command zone to commander's brew to commander versus not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers and with that i think we're going to call this episode to a close i'd like to thank my co-hosts for joining me thank you matt Thank you, guys. It was good being here, getting started. Thank you, Dana. Thanks a lot. That was fun. And thank you, Jason. Are you thanking me for not having my dog bark in the background during the outro? Definitely. We'll be back at you next <laughs> week with more data and more insights. And until then, remember, EDH, wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs> Perfect dog bark there at the end. The precon. For, I'm totally trashing that up. I'm sorry. <clears throat> sorry, I'm just gonna restart the whole thing. Oh, see, so you get do-overs. Is that how it goes? <laughs> Anyone can get do-overs. Ken, you love me and you know it. Clap your hands. On, on uh, one, or are we going? Is it three, two, one? We're, <laughs> we're so we're so out of sync already. <laughs> Don't cut this, Ken. So, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>